Welcome to Three Strands Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Then this week we're going to uh, wrap this series up with the last group of characters that are around Jesus at the cross. Now, um, this isn't every character that is part of the crucifixion, execution, resurrection story, but it's quite a bit of them, right? And so uh, we're not covering everybody, but I'm going to introduce you to a few new ones today that we haven't talked about yet um, in this story. But I want to talk with you today about the last um, crossroads moment you'll face in your life, the one that we can see on display here at the cross. And it's the moment of friendship, moment of friendship. So anybody need a friend? So just look at somebody sitting around you right now and just say to them, you're my friend. Or if you want to go Southern on you, be a, you're my best friend, Ricky Bobby. You can say, you're my best friend if you want to just tell somebody they're your friend. So maybe you're in need of some friendship today. Maybe somebody in your life is in need of some friendship from you. But we're going to look at the moment of friendship today. And to do that, I'm going to look at a few different characters. Um, And as If you've been here the last few weeks, you've hopefully realized by now that during this stretch of Jesus's life, this last piece of his life on earth, almost everybody bailed on him. Almost everybody abandoned him or ran away and hid, save the group of women that we talked about last week, right? If you were here last week. And then there was three guys that didn't really bail on him. We're going to look at a couple of them today. First one I want to show you is John. Now, John was one of Jesus's closest followers, one of his disciples, an apostle, um, super close to Jesus. In fact, he, when he writes um, his pieces of the Bible that he writes, he refuses to call himself John in any of the letters he writes or the gospel that he writes. Instead, he refers to himself only as the disciple who Jesus loved. I was like, man, what a description. I'd love for that to be like, that's how I want to think of myself. Your, Your life would be a lot better if you could just start to think, no matter what you hear or what happens in your day, be like, ah, oh, but I'm the one Jesus loves. But I'm the one Jesus loves, like no matter what happens. And that's how he always referred to himself. And so uh, he's the youngest of all the apostles, all the disciples. He is most likely a teenager when he started following Jesus. And there's a chance that even here at the cross, he might still be a teenager three years later. He might be 18 or 19 at this point. He's Um, at the cross, and you find out in the story that he's right there with all the grieving women we talked about last week. In fact, I'm going to read you a piece of the story in just a second. You'll see he's standing close enough to the cross for Jesus to actually talk to him from the cross, and he's right beside Jesus's mom, all right? And uh, it takes a lot of courage to be in that spot. Think about it. All the older disciples, all the other ones, they ran and hid. Peter, you see him just uh, several hours earlier that night before, denying that he even knew who Jesus was. At that point, right outside of Pilate's, um, you know, palace or, or headquarters, whatever you want to call it, John and Peter are together. And then one of these little, one of these people standing in the crowd say to Peter, weren't you one of Jesus' followers? He's like, no, I'm not one of his followers. And somebody else said, yeah, you were with him, weren't you? He's like, no, I wasn't with him. And then finally, somebody else says, yeah, you were. I've seen you with him. And Peter cusses him out and says, I don't even know the bleeping guy. That's where the other apostles are at at this point. And then you don't hear about Peter anywhere else after that. Like, I don't know if he ran or if he just slowly like exited, you know, stage left or what, but he's gone. And now the only guy you see left around these women is John. 
seemingly unafraid that he's going to be taken and executed next. He's still there with his friend, with these grieving women. And Jesus is close enough to speak to him. And I want to read you this part, this part of the story. It's in John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. You can see the scene now. And here's what it says. Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, we talked about that last week in the moment of heartbreak, right? Then verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother standing there, Beside the disciple he loved, that's John, right, talking about writing about himself, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Okay, this is like fascinating. Now think about it for a second. What's really going on here is kind of like a deathbed request right? You, you, you know, you imagine you're on the battlefield and you've been shot and you're about to die and you get one of your soldier buddies and you're like, hey, tell my wife I love her, right? That kind of a moment. You see what I'm saying? Or, or you know you're going and, and, and your friends or a family member's there at your bedside and you're about to die and you say to them in that moment, hey man, will you take care of my kids after I'm gone? Or something. It's that kind of a request that's going on here. You, you see that, right? There's not much left to happen before Jesus actually dies, gives up his spirit and dies. And so in this moment, he looks down and he sees John, this disciple who he loves, and, and beside him his mom. And he says to his mom, mom, from now on, think of him as your son. And he says to him, to John, John, from now on, treat her as if she's your mother. Take care of her once I'm gone. And then history records that John did that Mary would go on to live for somewhere between like 10 and 15 more years. Now, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was already dead at this point. We don't know when he died, but we know he was alive when Jesus was 12. And we know he's dead by the time Jesus dies at 33. So somewhere in that 20 years, Joseph dies. Because if he was still alive, Jesus wouldn't have asked somebody else to take care of his mom, Right? And so Joseph, or Jesus has most likely been taking care of his mom up to this point. And now he's kind of passing the torch to a friend. Will you take care of my mom for me when I'm gone? And then, like I said, history records that John did that. It took Mary into his home, treated her as if she were his own mother. She's probably, you know, in her, um, you know, 50-ish age around there at this point, around 50 or so. And he takes her into his home and she lives for another 10 or 15 years and he cares for her as if she's his own mother. And this story is just fascinating. I just want to point out like a couple of things about it. Um, it's, it's ironic that we know, we know from the Bible that Jesus had four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. And yet from the cross, he doesn't call on any of them to take care of mom. You notice that? Now, that's kind of strange, don't you think? If somebody's going to die and you're like, I really want my parents to be taken care of, you think you'd go to the family first, right? And maybe you've even heard the kind of the old adage, you know, like blood is thicker than water, right? And so it's like family is like, you know, even if you don't get along, they're there for you. But yet I want you to know today that faith is actually thicker than blood. And Jesus is kind of showing us this principle. And your physical family will end someday. But your spiritual family lives on forever. Why didn't Jesus ask 
any of these siblings to take care of mom after he's gone? Well, uh, we know because the Bible tells us in Mark 6, we find out that none of Jesus' brothers or sisters at this point believed that he was the Son of God. Some of them would believe. You know what it would take? Some of you in the room have a brother. I got a brother. Some of you in the room have a brother too. But you know what it would take for you to believe that your brother is the Son of God? He'd have to come back from the dead. And that's what Jesus did. And that's when they started believing. Because if your brother rolled in at some family reunion and was like, hey, I just want everybody to know I'm the Son of God. You'd be like, shut up. Oh, sorry, I'm not supposed to say that. You'd be like, quit talking. You don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot, you know. You, give, you call them all kinds of names and be like, shh, pipe down, you know. But if your brother died and then came back from the dead and you saw him again, you might believe whatever he says at that point. And that's kind of what happens in this story. And so Jesus is thinking to himself, like, I can't leave my mom in the care of my brothers and sisters. They don't even love me. They don't follow the one true God. They don't believe that I'm his son. I need somebody who's going to take care of mom the right way. And some of you have had that experience. You've got an earthly family, but, but your Christian family, your spiritual family, is actually tighter with you than they are. That's okay. Jesus is kind of modeling this principle for us. That that's okay. Because you should put your trust, your real relationships, your friendships, your deep intimacy into those who love and follow Jesus. And so we see that on display in this story, and that's kind of a, just a cool piece of it. And here John takes on this huge responsibility of caring for Jesus' mom. That's what a friend would do, isn't it? And I think almost everybody in the room would agree that if you were at the deathbed of a friend and they asked you to do something after they were gone, that you'd do almost anything you could to make it happen, wouldn't you? Because we kind of all recognize that's what real friendship looks like. If they were like, hey, man, take my ashes and scatter them here, you'd do it. If they were like, hey, after I'm gone, can you, my wife's going to really struggle financially. Could you maybe help her out? Or after I'm gone, you know, man, my kids, they need a dad still. Could you like mentor them a little bit? Like you'd do whatever you could to kind of make that happen if you could. That's what John does. He's a real friend in this story. Well, then Jesus dies just shortly after that. And, and what's talked about in church so often is the miracle of Jesus' death and the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. But there's this peace right in between those two events that takes place, Jesus' burial. And it's every bit as miraculous. Now, there's kind of two types of miracles. There's supernatural miracles that are outside the laws of nature, right? Jesus takes one kid's lunch and feeds five or 10 or 15,000 people with it. Somebody dies and Jesus, they're a prophet, or somebody raises them from the dead. That's a supernatural miracle. But then there's also providential miracles. This is the way God kind of pulls the puppet strings and works all things together for good. How's he do that? He's just the master of the universe. And so God has this way of kind of taking all circumstances and all actions that we make and all words that are used and somehow pulling them together to fulfill things he's predicted and to make all things work together for good to those who love him. And that's what's going on in between. We have this supernatural miracle of the Son of God giving his life for us. And it would take an unlimited amount of love to do that for us. And then you have this supernatural miracle of Jesus raising from the dead. And it would take an unlimited amount of power to make that happen. 
And then in the middle of these two events, you have this kind of providential miracle where thousands of years earlier, it was predicted how Jesus would be buried, where he would be buried, who would bury him. And now it's all coming true. It's this guy named Joseph. Now his name is Joseph of Arimathea. His last name is not Arimathea. The reason they call him that is because Joseph was just a common name back then. So to distinguish him between Jesus' dad, Joseph, maybe Joseph you've heard of from the Old Testament, he's just another Joseph, but he's from the town of Arimathea, so they just commonly kind of call him Joseph of Arimathea, this Jewish town. I want to read you some pieces of his life. It's either raining or the end is here, but it sounds like it's raining, so that's okay. At least we're inside. But um, I want to read you some pieces of his life. Let's just talk about him for a minute and see what kind of a friend he really was to Jesus. So I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 57. Matthew 27, verse 57. The words will be on the screen. And let's just read a little bit from all four of the gospel writers write about Joseph of Arimathea. So let me read you a little piece from several of them, okay? As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Now Mark adds this in Mark chapter 15, verse 43. Joseph was an honored member of the high council. That's the Jewish Sanhedrin. They're calling it the high council in this translation. Joseph was an honored member of the high council, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. We don't have time to dig into all of that, but he was clearly a follower of the one true God, a follower of Jesus, and he was waiting for God to set up his earthly kingdom. He was excited and on the lookout for God to do great things. Now look at Luke's account in chapter 23 of Luke, starting in verse 50. He says, now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council. They each keep kind of adding pieces of flavor to this story. But he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. What decision? The decision to go after and kill Jesus, right? Down in verse 53. He took the body down. What body? The body of Jesus. He took the body down from the cross, wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth, and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of the rock. You can kind of hear some of the similarities, right, in these accounts. This was, the, this was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. The Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday evening, go to sundown on Saturday evening. All right, so I want you to meet Joseph. Let me give you, from these passages I just read you, a quick list of who Joseph of Arimathea was, okay? Here's what we know. We don't know a lot about him, but here's what we do know. You ready? He was a follower of Jesus. Okay, you can get that from Matthew 27, 57 that I read. He's a follower of Jesus. He was rich or wealthy, right? You guys heard that in there. Get that from the same verse, Matthew 27, 57. He was powerful. He had a lot of influence, right? He was part of this ruling class in Israel. This Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men who kind of decided all the laws for the whole land. They were not just political leaders. They were also spiritual leaders. They were the equivalent today of kind of like uh, spiritual, political, and even military leaders to some extent under the Roman rule. They had access to their own soldiers. 
So, so they were like all powerful, this group of 70 in Israel. And Joseph is one of these 70. So he's got power and influence in the community for sure, right? And the one verse there, and that was in Mark 15, 43. In Luke 23, 50, we saw that he's a good, it says he's a good and righteous man. Okay, a good and righteous man. And then just from the overall context of everything you, that we just read together, you can see he's kind of a, a loyal, um, oh, I missed this one. In Matthew 27, 60, he's generous, right? Because he gives Jesus his own tomb. And, 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 uh, and I don't know if you kind of understand this or not, but kind of tombs in the side of caves or carved out of the rocks, that was like a normal thing in Israel at that time. But what wasn't normal was that Jesus would get to take his brand new tomb. Usually what they would do is like they'd bury somebody in one of these tombs. They'd wait a few years for the body to decay. They'd go back in. They'd take the bones out. They'd bury the next family member in that tomb. That's kind of how they do it, right? And so Jesus is the first one buried in this tomb as if he were a king getting his own tomb. Joseph gives him this new tomb. And so he's like generous with his stuff where this was probably designed to be for Joseph and all of his family. And then just kind of from the overall context of what we read, you can see that Joseph is this loyal, honorable man. I mean, there's something honorable about being a pallbearer for somebody. And here's Joseph, when all these other men have kind of fled the scene, Joseph comes on the scene and he requests, can I be the one to take his body down off the cross and take care of him after death? Even in death, he's serving his Lord. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be all of these things for me to be your friend, okay? Or that you have to be all of these things to be somebody else's friend. But if you were going to make a list of all the things you'd like to be true of your friends, I don't know that there's one thing on here you wouldn't put on the list. Like, I don't need you to be rich to be my friend, but if I was making you in a lab, like weird science style, right? You know, nobody under 40 knows what I mean by that. Then, then like, I would, I would wish you to be rich, right? I would want you to be generous. I'd want you to be, have influence in the community, to be a follower of Jesus, to be generous and loyal and honorable. These are all like kind of things, hey, if I could magically, you know, just wave my wand and make my friends a bunch of things, that's a pretty good list to start with, isn't it? In other words, what I'm saying is Joseph is kind of like a pretty good friend. Like if you had to pick out a friend, he's not a bad one to, to pick. But there's one thing that Joseph's missing. There's a, a quality that, that he's come up short on. There's a, a crack in his character, a flaw in his friendship with Jesus. It's one thing you wouldn't want to be true of your friends. I'm going to read it for you, and then let's talk about it. John records it. It's in John chapter 19, the beginning of verse 38. Let me read it to you. Here's this same character. And afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, I'm not saying your relationships are just like Joseph's relationship with Jesus would have been. Jesus is obviously the Son of God, the Lord of all eternity in the universe. And so our relationship with him is slightly different than the relationship with a friend. But have you ever had a friend like that? Like the friend that like treats you differently depending on who else is around? You know what I mean? Like if it's just you and them, your best buds, but when the other people are around, you're kind of dead to them. You know what I mean? Or, or the kind of friend that like, it seems to be like they're ashamed to even be known as one of your friends. 
You ever had a friend like that? That's kind of what's going on here. It's like Joseph is so afraid what everybody else will think if they know he's following Jesus that he keeps it a secret. He's so afraid of what will happen to him or what the backlash would be that he might be executed, that he might be kicked out of his position, that he might be ostracized from the community, that they might think he was less. That he's following Jesus, but he kind of keeps it on the down low. I don't know if you've ever had a friend like that, but it's kind of crummy, isn't it? If you've had a friend like that, you kind of know, like, I kind of, I mean, even if you're all those other things, it kind of makes you like a, I don't know, man. Yeah, I thought you were my friend, but I don't know if we're as tight as I thought. Doesn't it? I mean, that one thing kind of makes you, I don't know, a questionable friend, doesn't it? How about you? Is that what your faith is like? Your friendship to Jesus? Yeah, you come into church and you talk to everybody and you sit down and you listen and you're doing your Jesus stuff, your Christian stuff. But then you go out of here and you go back to work or you go back to school or you go back to your house and all of a sudden your faith is a completely different thing. Is that you? Are you a completely different person around church folk than you are at home around your kids and your wife or your husband? Are there two yous? Is there the like under control you that everybody sees in public and then the, the vicious, abusive you that only people at home see? Is there the you that loves Jesus on Sunday morning but nobody you work with has ever heard you talk about him? You're Joseph of Arimathea, up until this point at least. You're lacking something in your character. You're lacking something in your friendship, your relationship with the Lord. Here's what it is. You ready? I'm going to give it to you. It's one word. Courage. What Joseph lacked in that moment, up until this moment as a follower of Jesus, was courage. Enough courage to say, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter who knows. I'm going to talk about him no matter what they think. I'm going to serve him and let people know about it and wear it on my sleeve no matter what it costs me. But here he is at the cross, watching Jesus dying, secret and quiet. Oh, he's one of the ruling class, the Sanhedrin. Nobody knows. But then he comes to this moment, this moment of friendship, where he has to make a decision. Am I really with Jesus? Or am I really for myself? he's watching him. He watches Jesus die. And the Bible doesn't really tell us like what his thought process is or how it hits him. Or, but somehow we know that it's this moment right here where he decides to expose to the rest of the world that he loves Jesus. And he goes into Pilate and he asks, can I bury him? Can I take him off the cross? What would the other members of the ruling council think? What would it cost him to just serve Jesus in this way. We don't know, but Mark records this interesting Greek phrase for us in Mark chapter 15, the end of verse 43. Listen to his description. He says, jo not, did I say that right? Mark 15, 43, the beginning of verse 43. He says, Joseph of Arimathea gathered up courage and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. 
Some translation, if you're looking at the NLT, it says, I think, took a risk. He took a risk and went in and asked Pilate if he could have Jesus' body. Some translations say what it literally means in Greek, which is to be filled with courage in that moment. He took a risk. He mustered up courage and decided, no, this is the moment of friendship. Either I'm his friend or I'm not. If I walk away now and do nothing, just let him hang there, they're going to take him off that cross and they're going to throw him in some pit with a bunch of other criminals. But not my Lord. He's going to get a tomb. He's going to get some spices. He's going to get wrapped properly. He's going to get cared for and treated with respect. Why? Because he's my Lord. Because he's my real friend. And so he kind of has this idea of like, it's this idea of like, you're afraid, but, but you kind of muster up the courage to act instead of that fear, in spite of that fear. That's really what courage is, isn't it? It isn't that you have no fear. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said it about 90 years ago that courage isn't the absence of fear. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but I think he said courage isn't the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something is more important than the fear, right? When you're on the battlefield and the bullets are flying, when you're at school and somebody's being bullied, when you're at work and there's that moment where you could share about your faith, but you feel that lump in your throat and that kind of scared feeling come across your spine. It isn't that you don't feel fear. It's that you decide in that moment that there's something more important than the fear and you act anyhow. That's courage. Courage is when you feel the fear, but you willingly make this choice to act anyhow for the good. And so Joseph kind of musters up this courage. He goes into Pilate and he says, can I have Jesus's body to bury him properly? So what does it take to be a courageous friend? Now let me say that for the record, this story isn't actually about courage. But Joseph's story is. Jesus' story is about ultimate sacrifice and redemption and ultimate love for you. But Joseph's moment right here, we don't even need this moment. What good does it do in the story? Except to show us that there comes this moment where you got to act with courage even if you're afraid. And so here, Joseph, this good guy, this righteous guy, this rich guy, he musters up the courage and he's going to become a courageous friend now for the first time. Because up until this time, he's been hiding it. So what does it take to be a courageous friend? I really got it boiled down to two things. Because in your life, you're not going to have to go into any um, foreign nation political appointee and ask him if you can bury somebody and it's going to have backlash in your life. That's never going to happen to you. In fact, in our nation here, you're probably never going to be faced with a situation where just telling people that you're a friend of Jesus means that now they're going to execute you. It's probably not going to happen in your lifetime. Maybe it could, but not right now. You're not facing that kind of fear. But you're still going to feel fear. And you're still going to be called on to be a courageous friend. And it's still going to take courage to follow Jesus. I don't know if you've been coming to this church for a while. Maybe you've noticed that a lot of times at the end of the church service, I will pray for God to give you courage. Because I know enough in my walk with the Lord to know that every single step of faith you take, takes courage. So I'm begging him week after week to give you guys courage so that you will hear the truth and act on it even if you're afraid. So here's what it takes to be a courageous friend. I really got to boil down to these two things. Ready? A courageous friend speaks the truth to you. Speaks the truth to you. Because a lot of times it's easier just to be like, oh, that's real nice. Just agree with whatever your friends say. 
you know they're wrong, but you're not going to call them on it because it'll just create friction in the relationship. It'll just make them upset with you. And we really live in a world like that today where we're all just supposed to be yes men for everybody in our life. If you ever tell anybody they're wrong, then you're the devil. If you ever disagree with anybody, then you must hate them. That's what everybody thinks now. And so everybody just buttons up and just nods their head and just agrees with everything everybody says. But a courageous friend speaks the truth to you, even when they feel afraid. And here's the other half of it. A courageous friend sacrifices themselves for you. Right? I mean, it takes courage to stand up for a friend who needs somebody to stand up for him. It, it takes courage to come to the rescue. When you know somebody's getting beaten, it takes courage to come to their, to their aid, doesn't it? But here's the kicker. A courageous friend speaks the truth to you and they sacrifice for you. But, but there's another phrase you got to add to that. They do those things no matter what it costs them no matter what the cost. That's what a courageous friend does. You with me on this? I get it. I've lost friends over the truth. But if I don't share the truth with them, I'm not really a friend. I'm that friend that's kind of ashamed to even know them. That I act differently in certain situations. How dare I come to church on Sunday morning and preach the truth of God but then when somebody I love in my life is going through something, I clam up about it. I just shake my head and be like, great. Disobeying Jesus, keep going. Doing your own thing, not living out the kind of life God would want for you. Yay, I'm your buddy. Is that the kind of friend I am? And if it is, am I really even a friend at that point? So let me ask you two questions kind of wrap up today. Here's the first one. Are there people in your life that you call friends that need you to speak some truth to them? But you've been too afraid to do it because it might hurt the relationship. A courageous friend musters the courage, having courage, and goes into pilot and asks, no matter what it would cost them, Question number two, have you been a real friend to Jesus? Or have you Joseph of Arimathea? Have you been walking around this world, one person on Sunday morning, but a whole other person Monday to Saturday? Have you been walking around your life afraid to say anything for Jesus because of the backlash that might come to you? This is the moment of friendship. It's funny because I keep going back to this story in this series, but Mark chapter 8, Jesus is talking to all of his followers. And he kind of gathers them all up, gets their attention. And I've shared this with you already several times in this series, but he says, guys, listen, if anybody wants to be my disciple, you have to give up your own way of doing things. Take up your cross, which is so ironic because here he is taking up his own cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And he says, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is there anything that's worth more than your soul? 
And then the last verse of that paragraph, listen to what he says. Listen if he isn't describing Joseph of Arimathea. Listen if he isn't describing how we tend to act during our week sometimes. Listen if he isn't describing you today. When you get to Mark chapter 8, verse 38, and he says this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man, that's what Jesus always called himself, will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see what he's talking about? What he's talking about is the moment of friendship where you get the chance to stand up for Jesus and serve somebody else. Stand up for Jesus and declare his message. Stand up for Jesus and talk about what he means to you, how great he is to you, how loving he's been to you, how devoted you are to him. And you feel fear. And you're so ashamed, you just stay quiet. Those aren't my words. I don't like them either. But I just want to ask you, have you been a real friend to Jesus or not? Now I look at this all today, this teaching and this piece of the Bible, and I think to myself, why? Why would I choose? Why would I choose to speak the truth for Jesus no matter what it costs me? And why would I choose to sacrifice myself for Jesus no matter what it costs me? It's this series. Have you heard all the stuff he's gone through for you? How desperately he loves you and wants to be close to you? Can you see it in your mind's eye right now? Him hanging on the cross, looking at you, saying something like, hey man, I'm not gonna be here forever. Will you take care of my mom for me? Will you tell others about me? Will you serve me even after I'm not in front of your face? Will you be courageous for me, even if it costs you everything? And I'm kind of looking back at him and I'm thinking to myself, if I were anywhere else, Jesus, I probably wouldn't. But here, right here, where you're dying for me, when I'm watching you bleed and suffer for me, I'll do it, man. I'll do whatever you want in this moment. You deserve it because you love me that much. I heard this story when I was a kid of a, when I was in college, not a kid, I guess, when I was in college, of this kid who got lost from home, little kid, probably younger than Sid, just little kid, got lost from home, and this younger couple found this kid walking along the side of the road, and they pulled their car over, and they're like, hey, where are your parents at? And the little kid was crying and didn't know where her parents were. And where do you live? And the kid didn't know their address. And do you know your phone number? And back then we all had phones at our house. So, you know, but they were, do you know your phone number? And they were like, no, they didn't know. Their, they were too young to know their phone number. And they asked for their last name and they looked for their last, they knew their last name. They um, tried to look it up in a phone book. You have to tell some of these people what phone book is after church. But there was a common name, so they couldn't find them. And, and then they finally said to this kid, do you know anything by your house that we could like look for to find, like a landmark, you know? You know, there's anything by your house, like a big building or a, a place to play, a playground, anything like that. And the kid says, there's not really anything in our house, but in our neighborhood, but houses, except at the very end of our block, there's a church. And I said, at the top, the little kid said, at the top of that church, there's a cross. And she said, if you can just get me to that cross, I can find the way back to my house. And some of you in the room right now, 
have kind of wandered away from being Jesus's friend. You've kind of wandered away from serving him and following him and, and, and you're kind of two people. You're this Sunday morning person and then there's this other you. And this is the moment of friendship where you can say to Jesus, hey, I kind of messed some stuff up, but right now, back at this cross, when I can see what you've done for me, when I can see what you've gave, given up for me, when I can see it so clearly right in front of you at the cross, I can get back home now. I can get back on track now. I can get back to being a real friend now. I can go out of here and I can speak the truth about you no matter what it costs me. I can sacrifice for you no matter what it costs me. I can be a real friend in this moment. Can I pray for you to have the courage to become Jesus's real friend for the first time or maybe just again? Dear Heavenly Father, will you give the people in our room courage right now? Because it takes courage to step up to the plate and be a real friend. But man, you, you deserve it. What you've given up for us, what you've endured for us, what you sacrificed for us, just to say to us, I love you more than anything in the whole universe. Would you give people in our room courage right now, God, to declare out loud their love for you, their thankfulness to you, but then to walk out of the doors and be a real friend of you, to speak the truth and to sacrifice themselves no matter what it costs. In Jesus' name I pray. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.